Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, this morning, as we jump back into this series, I want to just say thanks, and I want to commend every single person who began this journey with us when we started uh, What Lies Beneath. Um, we've been in this series, we're just beyond the halfway point of this series, and we want to affirm every single person that has been with us from the beginning and has journeyed with us thus far. I, I especially want to affirm those of you here this morning that have gone above and beyond the Sunday morning worship experience, and you've jumped into one of our connection groups. And for those of you that are in our connection groups, you are getting the opportunity to really unpack this material at a much deeper level. And we just want to commend you for that. We want to affirm that. I'm hearing tremendous reports of individual growth and health that's coming as a result of our connection groups. And I just want to say that the older I get as a pastor, um, the more I think I appreciate the sentiment of the Apostle John, who wrote this in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4. I have no greater joy than this. To hear that my spiritual children are living their lives in truth. Now, I know you may be older than me biologically and physically, but when you are a pastor, you are entrusted with the spiritual well-being and care of the body, of the flock. You become a shepherd. That's what the Bible calls it. And, and I feel what John felt. There is such a joy when you hear that those who you are investing in are actually continuing to walk and take that next step in their journey of faith to learn and apply God's grace and truth. So this series has been years in the making, literally. In 2004, I read a book. It was released by a brand new author by the name of Peter Scazzaro. In 2004, he was pastoring a church in Queens, New York, and he wrote a book entitled Emotionally Healthy Church. When I read that particular book, I came to chapter number four, and it wrecked me. I mean, I have not been the same since. I've been ruined ever since chapter four in Emotionally Healthy Church. Because chapter four was a self-assessment. It was actually really out of place for the material that he was going through. It was a chance for you to take a look at your own life, to do an evaluation, and base yourself in eight different areas of how well you're doing in becoming a spiritual and an emotional adult. Now, up until that point, 2004, I had been in full-time vocational pastoral ministry for nearly 20 years. So I expected that I was going to hit this assessment and I was going to be right near the top of that assessment. Boy, was I in for the surprise of my life. When I took the assessment, I was not, and I did not rank an emotional adult in even one of the eight categories. It was revealing. It was startling. It was humbling. That assessment became a mirror to my soul. Now, every few years in the last dozen years, I have retaken that assessment. In fact, I just took it again right before we started this campaign. In fact, we asked all of our connection group leaders to get a baseline, a spiritual baseline on where they are coming into this. 
And I can tell you that as in, in retaking this assessment, I did not score perfectly yet again. There are still areas in my life where I find I am not where I want to be. But the good news is, as I have grown over these last number of years, I am not the person I used to be. And that's really good news for all of us here this morning, because here's what that means. It means it is never too late to become the person that you would like to be. It's never too late to start a journey that takes you to a deeper place, a more meaningful place in your relationship with God. So fast forward 2006. Scazzaro releases a second book entitled Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, where he really begins to drill down on our personal lives. That's what our connection groups are unpacking. All of you that are in them, you know, and you're learning this material. Then in 2015, he released another book entitled The Emotionally Healthy Leader. And all of a sudden, I begin to connect some dots between my own spiritual well-being, my own spiritual maturity, my emotional health, and my leadership. And, and next to God's word, beyond scripture, this, these resources have done more to impact my spiritual life than just about any other resources that I have read. And I am tremendously grateful. So what began for me as a personal spiritual roadmap of sorts has become actually the vision of our leadership and the culture of Grace Crossing Church. Now, we are not yet the church we want to be in this area, but we are intentionally moving the needle to become more emotionally and spiritually integrated in our lives. We think it's that significant. It's that important. So this series was not some series we thought up several weeks before we began it. It was not just a good idea. In fact, I've been wanting to do a series on this for years, and yet the timing just was not right. We were not yet integrating it in our leadership to the level that I felt like we needed to. And so I kept putting it on hold saying, God, in your time, we will bring this series and we will move it forward. And we are here. The time is now. And we're in a series entitled What Lies Beneath. And so this morning, we're going to jump back into the series. Let Let me preface everything I say this morning by saying this. The purpose of this series is not information. And the purpose of this series is not even inspiration. The purpose of this series is integration. This series is designed to help all of us integrate our faith in Jesus Christ into every fabric of our life. So the word integrity is the root word for the word integration. Integration simply means having two parts working together and complementing one another. It's harmony. And whenever there is not integration, we refer to something as disintegrated. That is not a good word when you apply it to anything in your life. You do not want to become disintegrated. In fact, we don't want our lives to disintegrate. But many people experience disintegration in their work life, in their mental health, in their families, in their marriages, in their faith, because they're not choosing to live lives of integrity. They're not really getting the inner parts of their heart working well with the outer exterior of their life. 
And so we've been using for this series an illustration. And that illustration is that of the iceberg. When you look at an iceberg, you only see above the surface 10%. The other 90% of the iceberg is unseen. It lies beneath the surface. Now, Susan Howwatch calls this top of the iceberg our glittering image. In other words, we sculpt the top, we refine the top, we spend energy on the top, We want to make the top look the very best that it can. Why? Why does the top get the most attention? Because the top gets the most attention. It's what people see. It's what people recognize. It's what gets applause. It's what people celebrate. And because it's what gets the most attention, what we tend to do in our lives is we put the lion's share of our time and our energy working to make the top 10% of our life, the public self, look the very best. I mean, let's face it. It's the best version of you. Problem is, it isn't the total you. It's not what we are totally made up of. It's an illusion. It's only part of who we are. And what we do in our lives is we tend to spend so much of our energy working on the exterior stuff to the neglect of our interior world. We spend very little time and energy working on what lies beneath. And so you know what we do in our relationships? We go around having relationships with glittering images and not real people. You know why? Because we're afraid of what people will think, what people will say, how people will treat us. Will we be loved? Will we be liked? Will we be accepted? Will we be judged? If people really knew, What lied beneath? Here's the reality. God does not want a relationship with our glittering image. God wants relationship with the total us. In fact, let me just say this. God wants to know us and God wants relationship with every part of us, including all of our deficits, all of our weaknesses, all of our insecurities, and all of our immaturities. God wants it all. God wants to have a relationship with you based on the real you, who you really are. God does not want us to come and bring to him just our glittering images. And so according to the Bible, God does not choose us based on our strengths. God chooses us based on our weaknesses. And I want you to think about that the next time that you are tempted to do what all of us do, and that is hide, cover over, and bury our weaknesses. The problem is they don't die. They simply get buried alive. Those things in our hearts that we try to hide are those very things that stay alive. They stay buried, but they stay alive and they affect us in so many ways by the way we act and the way we react to those around us. So here's the primary premise for the series, What Lies Beneath?, The premise is that spiritual maturity and emotional maturity are inseparable. It is impossible to become a spiritually mature adult while remaining an emotionally immature child. It's not possible. 
For us to become spiritually whole and mature, to live lives of integrity, it means that we must also bring God into those deeper, darker parts of the human heart that we would rather no one else know about. And it's a scary place. And it's a formidable task. And it takes years to do. And it's why many people don't want to spend the time. We like to live on the surface. The surface is such a safe place, isn't it? It's just not the real place. And so what we're doing in this series is we're talking about ways that we can become more spiritually mature, more spiritually healthy by becoming more emotionally healthy and emotionally honest. To have a true relationship with God, it involves both self-awareness and emotional honesty. And Jesus actually juxtaposes those in the sixth beatitude. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says this, Matthew chapter five, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart. Now notice this, for they will see God. That word pure in the first century Greco-Roman culture one of the ways that it was translated was it meant to see through. So the word pure was not just to be free of defect or free of, of contaminants. It also meant to be translucent or transparent. So what is it Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, if we want to see God, then God must see us for who we really are. If we want to really know God, then God must know us in our totality. We must invite God. We must have a relationship with God, not just presenting to him our glittering image, but presenting to him our whole self with the good and the bad and the ugly. So in this series, we're giving prescriptions. And we've already talked about four of them. And I want to review those for us this morning. And the reason I want to review these very quickly is because I want to make sure, first of all, if you're new at Grace Crossing Church, that you can get caught up real quickly to where we are. We'd encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast, but this will give you the high level. The other reason that we want to do this is because we want to drive these deeper into our hearts and into the culture of Grace Crossing Church. We want to move beyond paper-thin theology and skin-deep spirituality to Christian integrity, where we bring our faith and we bring the person of Jesus Christ and we bring our new self into everything. We bring it to bear on everything that has shaped us up until this point. And so there are four prescriptions that we've already talked about. Here they are. Number one, know yourself in order to know God. That's really what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel. If you want to know God, then first of all, you've got to know yourself. Simply put, this is becoming my authentic self. It is putting off with the power and the spirit of Jesus, my old self, which is being corrupt, to rethink in my mind, to be renewed in my thinking, and to put on my new self, which has been created in the likeness of God. It is a process, but it is becoming my authentic self. Know yourself in order to know God. The second prescription that we gave is go back 
in order to go forward. This is simply breaking free from your past, from those negative influences, those habits, those patterns, those scripts, those messages, those stories that God does not want to shape who we are today. God wants us to bring his truth to bear on the things that shaped us from our family of origin or from negative experiences in our years of formation. And we carry them with us all of our lives. We may, we may not admit they're there. We may bury them, but they never really die without God's help. So know yourself in order to know God. Go back in order to go forward. Thirdly, journey through the wall. The ancients called this the dark night of the soul. The journey through the wall usually comes with a really difficult season in your life. A season that may or may not resolve, a season that you, where you may or may not actually experience triumph. But it is a season where you will learn more about God, more about yourself, and more about putting your faith to work in a new way than anything else can do. We want to journey around the wall. We want to go over it. We want to go under it. We want to ignore it. But the reality is God says we've got to walk through it. We've got to go through those painful experiences in our life. So know yourself in order to know God. Go back in order to go forward. Journey through the wall. And finally, the fourth prescription we've talked about is enlarge your soul through grief and loss. That is surrender to your limits. Every single loss in our life is a God-given limit. And the ultimate loss that we will experience, that we will one day have to grieve in other people's lives or people will grieve in our life, is death. I'm doing a funeral this afternoon, and it's always a reminder that there is a loss that all of us will one day experience that will profoundly shape us. And we can ignore the grief and the loss that comes with it. But what we do when we lean into it is it enlarges who we are. It makes us more like God. Now this morning, I want to take us to another prescription. One that is not a brand new spiritual discipline, but one that the way that I want to share it this morning, I will suspect that very few of us in this auditorium are doing Very few of us are really putting to practice. We may know it in theory, but that is where it is stayed. Peter Scazzaro, in his book, actually calls this the daily rhythms of your life. And so this morning, I want to talk about this next prescription designed to make us holier, healthier, and whole as followers of Jesus. I want to talk about the daily rhythms. Now, Ruth Haley Barton wrote a book, and I like the term that she uses to refer to this. It actually is the title of her book. She calls it Sacred Rhythms. And I actually love her subtitle. She calls it Arranging Your Life for Spiritual Transformation. Now, here's why that's so profound is we often do not spend the time and energy to actually arrange our lives for spiritual transformation. At best, God and faith and worship is an afterthought. 
At best for many of us, we'll fit it in if it conveniently works in our schedule. But beyond that, we will not spend much time thinking about how do I arrange my life in a way that sets me up for spiritual transformation. Now, creating sacred rhythms actually requires four practices that I'm going to talk about. I want to spend over the next two weekends time unpacking these four practices. We're going to talk about two of them this morning. Now, the very first practice of creating these sacred rhythms is both counterintuitive and it is countercultural. It goes against the very fabric of our culture and it goes against every fiber in our being. Here it is. Practice slowing down. If you and I have any hopes in today's world of creating holy, sacred rhythms, we have got to practice slowing down. A few years back, an author and pastor by the name of John Ortberg called his ministry mentor the late theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard. He called Dallas Willard on the phone and he said, listen, I am at a point, this guy was at the height of his success in pastoring, but he knew something was missing. He said, what am I missing in my leadership arsenal to take me to the next level? His mentor on the other end of the phone was quiet for a moment. And then here's how he responded. He said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ortberg said, good, I got that. What's next? (laughs) Dallas Willard, after a moment of pause, said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's it, John. That's it. Dallas Willard went on to write that hurry is the single greatest enemy to spiritual formation of our day. Whenever we are in a hurry, whenever we are finding ourselves rushed, guess what gets ignored? Guess what we do not take time to think about? Guess who is missing from our mental energy? God often is. We often spend very little of our time working on spiritual formation when we are far too busy trying to accomplish things in life. You see, we have been fed some incredible lies in our culture today. And the primary lie that we have been fed in our culture says this, if I am busy, then I am significant and important. But here's the flip of that lie. If I am not busy, I am unimportant and insignificant. And we have swallowed it. We believe it. Because we have been told this lie through messages that have come through us, through media outlets, through family of origin, through everything that we experience in this world. It is speaking these messages to us. It is saying... That activity equals productivity. 
It is telling us that the activity of our life, the busyness of our life, is what makes us productive. We are told these lies that rest is either weakness or laziness or both. We are fed a lie. A lie that says that the sum total of who I am is actually revealed and measured by what I accomplish. And so what has happened in our world today? We simply have gotten busier and busier and busier and pulled in more and more and more directions. And along the way, the word faster has become the buzzword of our culture today. We live in a world where we want everything faster, right? We want faster transportation. We want faster communication. We want faster checkout lines. We want faster food. We want faster shopping and shipping. We, we, we even want faster dating and marriages, right? We want to get it done as quickly as we can because it's all about faster. And Thomas Merton said that it is that principle and practice that has done violence to our soul. There is something that has happened on the interior of our life that along the way has been damaged that God never intended. So we've been shaped, we've been, we've been trained to think that, that our activity, that the busyness, that the pace of life is a good thing. And that somehow slowing down is inconvenient Somehow slowing down is an annoyance. Somehow slowing down means that we are not being productive. And it is a lie. It's not true. According to the Bible, God is not in a hurry. According to the Bible, what God does, God often does slowly and not quickly. Not at our pace. And so what I believe that we've got to do is you and I, if we're going to learn to practice sacred rhythms, if we're going to learn to create them in our lives, we've got to practice slowing down. And the way to do that, listen to this, is to become a cultural atheist. We've got to begin to say, I do not believe what they are aspiring, what they are selling me. I do not believe that message. I am an atheist to this culture. I am an atheist to this particular belief that faster is better, that faster is significant. I must learn to slow down the pace of my life if I'm going to create healthy, sacred rhythms. And there's a second practice that really goes right along with this, but I think it is so significant we get this one. The second practice to create sacred rhythms is to practice a biblical work-rest cadence. A biblical work-rest cadence. That means that you and I must create a rhythm in our lives where we have a full understanding of what God says, what God teaches us about both work and rest. 
If we're going to become cultural atheists, then we must become fully shaped by the theology of God in every area of our life. And we need a biblical theology for everything. We need a biblical theology for the way we live. We need a biblical theology for work and rest and money and play and everything. It is seeing your life through the prism of God and through your belief that God is the sovereign, the final authority in every area of life. So if we're going to create a biblical work rest cadence, we must have a biblical theology of both work and rest. And the theology of work actually is given to us in the very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God creates Adam and says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now that's really important because a lot of people, a lot of well-meaning Christians believe that work is part of the punishment that came with the fall of man, with original sin. It is not. Work is a gift from God. Work was designed from the very beginning to actually add value to man, to add value to our lives, to give us both purpose and meaning. So when God creates man, what God says is, I want to give him a work to do. In fact, it stands to reason that the work was created before the man was created. God had the work to be done before God ever created Adam. And so that's significant. Here's what it means. It means when done for God, with God, our work is an act of worship. When it is done with God, for God, our work is an act of worship. Paul the Apostle actually adds his voice to this in Colossians. When he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, get that verse down. Because that verse will change everything that you do in this life into an act of worship. If we do everything we do for God and not for people, if we do it for God's glory and not for human recognition or applause, all of a sudden what we do becomes the highest act of worship in our lives. And so a theology of work doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. God says man was created to work. But what does the Bible tell us? What does the Bible teach us? How do we have a frame for work according to Scripture? Well, there are several things I want you to know this morning. First of all, I want you to know that you are not what you do. I know that in life, we often tether our identity to what we do. You meet someone new, what's one of the very first questions you ask? So what do you do? That adds value to so much of our life because it often defines our identity. But you are not what you do. The second thing that we get theologically from Scripture about our work is this. You and I earn a living from our job, but we receive a life from God. 
You may earn your living from your job, but you earn and receive a life from God. Luke chapter 9, verse number 25. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world, but loses or forfeits himself? Some translation says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? That is not simply talking about your life in eternity. It is talking about the true you. If we're not careful, what we will do in life is we will spend so much of our energy working to earn a living, but we will not really receive the life that God wants to give us. And that's what we receive from him. The third thing I think you need to know about a biblical theology of work is this. My highest work is the will of God. Our highest work in this life is God's will. That's actually what Jesus said. John chapter four, verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus knew something that very few of us understand and even fewer of us practice. And that is that he understood that his work in this life was all about fulfilling and honoring the will that God had for him. Nothing more, nothing less. That means that if what you're doing with your life is to bring honor to God and you're doing it for the Lord and you're doing it because God has empowered you and entrusted you with it, then it's an act of worship. Do it wholeheartedly, not for man, but for the Lord. So we need a theology of work. We also need a theology of rest. And here's what the Bible teaches about rest. The Bible teaches that rest is a gift from God. The Bible teaches that that rest is also an act of our worship. It is the way that we worship God, not just in what we produce, in what we do in our busyness, but what we also do in our rest is an act of our worship to God. So listen to what I'm about to say. You can experience relaxation in a place, but you will only find rest in a person. According to the Bible, rest is not found in a place or in a space. It is found in a face, in God's face. It is found in the person of God. In fact, Jesus actually declared this very, very clearly. Jesus said that it is our relationship with God to him that brings this rest. Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Do you know when our yoke becomes heavy and the burden becomes really tough? It's when we're actually not doing with our life what God's asking of us. It's when we're not in a healthy work rest cadence the way God designed it in Scripture. Now, as we close this morning, let me say it this way. 
you have been hardwired with a healthy work-rest cadence in your chest. In fact, every human being has been hardwired with a healthy work-rest cadence in their chest, literally. I want you to think of your heart that God created, the physical organ. Did you know your physical organ, your heart, has been created with a healthy work-rest cadence? What happens with the human heart? What's happening as you're sitting here in this auditorium right now? You're not even thinking about it. But your heart is doing in your body what God has hardwired into you as a pattern for the way he's asking us to live our lives. Your heart is beating and pumping and it is relaxing and resting without you even giving it a thought. Do you know where heart troubles begin? Many heart troubles begin when the heart cannot and does not relax and rest the way that it's supposed to. We call that diastolic heart failure. And diastolic heart failure is when the heart does not do properly what it is intended to do. It is not resting the way it's been created. And did you know that nearly half of all heart failures in the world can be linked to diastolic heart failure, which means the heart is not resting properly. The heart was not created to work nonstop. Neither were you. The heart was created to find healthy rest and relaxation in the right rhythm And when it does, the heart is healthy. When it doesn't, it creates all sort of health complications. And so when our heart is not doing what it's supposed to do, what happens? It creates problems, it creates issues, and medical experts will tell us that it is this rhythm of work and rest that makes our physical bodies healthy. Well, let me tell you this morning, spiritual health problems begin when we do not honor a biblical work Rest cadence. It creates issues. It creates crisis. It creates problems. Why? Because we do not have a healthy center and a healthy heart the way God designed us to live. So how you doing? How you doing in this area? How's your spiritual heart these days? How's your work rest cadence? Do you need some work in this area? Join the crowd. We all do. So let me rephrase something I said earlier in this talk. Let me, let me say it in a sl- slightly different way. It is never too late to become the person God wants us to be. Let's stand together. Bow your heads, please, with me, if you will. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. We recognize our need and our dependence upon you that we cannot become the people you desire us to be without sacred rhythms. We often minimize or ignore this area of our lives 
until it's too late, until we have a problem, until we are forced to acknowledge rhythm. But God, we want to arrange our lives for spiritual transformation. And to do that is going to take, it's going to take incredible decision-making and courage on our part. We are going to have to become cultural atheists and we're going to have to become biblically, theologically centered. Which means we've got to practice slowing down. And we've got to practice a biblical work-rest cadence. So I pray that you'll help us, each one of us, to give you the interior of our lives, the heart of our faith, the heart of our soul, And as we present it to you, may we begin to live lives of incredible integrity that integrate our outer world, the top 10%, with the 90% that lies beneath the surface. God, we want to be transformed, and only you can make that happen and help us. So we invite you into it this morning. Pray that you give us the grace, the truth, and the time that we need to grow in this area of our lives. We submit these things to you, Lord. And we pray them in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. God bless each of you. Thanks for being here this morning. Meditate on what we shared today. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.